Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. I've seen what poverty looks like. It's like the carrot in front of the horse. It drives me daily because I do not want my kids or my kids' kids to have that legacy. (laughs) I want to create a new established legacy for my family and generations to come. We all have the battlefield of the mind. It doesn't matter your income level, your class level, or anything. We all struggle with reality. And there's a summit to greatness. I mean, there's, you know, it's just dedicated work going back and forth and you know the struggle is real but one foot at a time right as long as you're helping people the money will follow and that's something i would have loved to have known in that first six months after bankruptcy stop having a pity party figure out how to help people that's what's going to help you make more money more money more money Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, life is all about fulfillment and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six and seven figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd. Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Brandon Thompson. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Brandon G. Thompson. So who is Brandon? Brandon is a real estate investor that is doing something radically different. And I'm slowly getting more and more interested into the world of real estate investing. But for whatever the reason is, I've been hesitant on uh, going all in. But I had a conversation with him recently that I wanted to share with you guys. And that is about moving into the world of sort of the digital side of real estate investing. And what I mean by that is leveraging technology in a very four-hour work week, Tim Ferriss way, by investing in real estate, but doing it through Airbnbs. So you have this massive funnel where people are searching and looking to rent properties for vacations. So I don't know a lot about real estate. So if you do, uh, forgive the newbie questions, but 
there's a lot of information here. We, we sort of like uh, tracked his journey from coming from a trailer park to owning a trailer park to owning uh, single family homes and to now where he is, which is investing into the world of Airbnbs. I learned so much from this episode and it's a very work hard, play hard episode because he's not just working on real estate. He's actually working on living a bigger, more fulfilling life. He's about to meet with me in Monaco, with the other 20 people in my masterminds um, and really connect on a deeper level. So he's just a fascinating guy. I love him to death and I think you're really going to love this episode. Before we get into it, a lot of people have been asking me about coaching with me. I am working with a few select people that are ready to make a change in their life. If you fall into that category, go to workhardplayhardcoaching.com. Okay, please enjoy this conversation I had with Brandon. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. You know what, man? I am super pumped to do this interview with you because anytime somebody has a passion for a field that they're in, like you do with real estate, it's honestly, what's the word? It's intoxicating for me to learn from. So welcome to the show officially. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. So I think we're going to break this up into a couple of parts. The first part is we're going to talk about real estate, maybe help people to invest in some properties. We'll talk a little bit about how you're now incorporating Airbnb into the mix. And then we're going to talk about fulfillment and some of the things that you do in your life as it relates to fulfillment. And then we're going to wrap up with rapid fire questions. Cool? Perfect. All right. So let's start with your backgrounds. You are a self-made guy. You're a self-made millionaire. You were raised though in a trailer park. How much of your drive comes from those modest beginnings? I will be honest with you. It is, it is a lot. It, it makes me want to do more, to be quite frank. I've seen what poverty looks like, and it's like the carrot in front of the horse. It drives me daily because I do not want my kids or my kids' kids to have that legacy. <laughs> I want to create a new established legacy for my family and generations to come. Well, can you kind of remember what the moment was like where, you know, maybe you were a kid. I, I remember being, you know, a kid growing up in New York in a shitty apartment with an alcoholic father and a lot of physical abuse. And I remember just sitting, you know, kind of like with my head under the covers going, get me the hell out of here. Like I'll never, ever be in this place again. Can you remember that feeling? And maybe if you can take me back to what it was like for you. You know, I will say this, even though I grew up in poverty, I did not know I was in poverty. I had a loving mother and father. They, they did the best they could. They um, were the providers and I never knew anything else. I didn't know that I was poor, most likely up until high school. So then you start seeing people with the nice cars and I've got the shitty 1988 Chevy Beretta and things like that. It's like, dang, wow, I'm confused here. And obviously that opens the whole new world for me. But uh, yeah, it really didn't affect me until later on in life when I realized, man, after I got married and things like that, I mean, we had, you know, just the pop-up wedding, uh, my wife and I, and uh, realized that both of our families came from nothing. And, you know, we did too. Uh, My wife has a similar story. She grew up in another trailer park uh, across the city 
And, uh, it, you know, that's when I really started uh, creating that entrepreneurial desire to do more. You know, it's so interesting because there's so many, you know, it's this double-edged sword, right? You know, when you, when you have children like you do and I do, and, you know, we want the best for the kids and we don't want them, you know, raised the way we were. But in some ways, part of the way we were raised is, you know, what was the kick in the ass that we needed to be successful? Do you worry about that for your kids that you just, you know, you're giving them too many things? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I do. I, uh, so they have never seen poverty. They've really never seen middle class. They've seen, you know, I can't say that I'm completely rich or anything, but you know, very wealthy, I guess, independently coming from my side of town, but they don't know what that looks like in middle-class America either. So they've been giving everything that they have ever dreamed and desired. And, um, you know, we were going to our Airbnbs up here in Hilton Head, uh, just last night, I had my daughter riding with me in my vehicle, and my oldest daughter was riding with my wife. And I said, hey, Sadie, are you excited about going to Hilton Head? Now, most people would really, really appreciate that uh, and say, yes, I am. My, my daughters, it's, it's second nature to be bouncing around all over the Southeast and uh, having life experiences, flying into Guatemala, uh, doing missions with uh, helping uh, you know widows and orphans down there. And They've seen so many things that I have never seen in my whole entire life up until when I was an adult. And they've had three lives uh, within 10 and 14 years, you know, together. So I do kind of worry that I'm, I'm offering them a lot. So to summarize that, this year, uh, we have decided not to do Christmas gifts anymore. We told them that we were really, really well off. They're, they have, you know, we've been giving them meaningless gifts. For them, it means something. But for us, it's like, we just keep giving you, giving you, giving you. You go through a season and these... These gifts are not uh, utilized anymore. What does it look like if we just do something and give back? Let's let's give back. Let's get back down to Guatemala, hug on some of these orphans. You know, give them water, donate some money. Let's go uh, to a local homeless shelter and and just just love on people and and show them what Christmas is all about. And we're going to give back to them and give them gifts, and that'll be our gifts to our families. So that's kind of something that we're working on, so I can change the my blessing, but somewhat of my daughter's curse, you know, that they've had bestowed upon them uh, of different life experiences to change that mindset. So I can shift them and guide them as a father. Now, do they get it or, or are they where, you know, are, are they like, where's my iPhone 12 dad? I mean, you know, that's great Guatemala, but I want my presence or are they all in with you? <laughs> well, they're still young, 10 and 14 spoiled little girls, but in a, in a good way, they, I talk to them. I, I, uh, my parents never really talked to me. I was kind of raised as a cable guy. Uh, they both worked a lot, and then they set me in front of movies, which is a reason why I love uh, film. Uh, you know, later on the day in, in my adult years, but I sit down and talk with my kids. I uh, try to implement life lessons and guide them, and strategize with them, and tell them, and and give them hope. Um, you know, and, and you know, inspiration, and let them let them understand what's real and and, and what is important in life. And you know what, honestly, they do get it. They, they're, they're a little spoiled, but you know, that's from coming from a, a, an adolescent to, to a teenager. And then they're really kind of starting to think independently for themselves. And dude, I mean, as a dad, that's the most I can offer. You know, what I want to instill in these kids is first of all, you can create wealth. And then I want to help them with something that I battle with off and on, which is health. I'm not saying I'm not healthy, but 
I want them to eat right. And then I want to you know, have them give. I want them to give. So those are the three things that are most important to me that I can teach them as a father. And that's what I'm trying. That's what I try for. That's great. Let's, um, I want to kind of sandwich your, uh, your trajectory, trajectory a little bit from making money to losing money to making money again. So let's start with making money. Very, very young at 20 years old, you have 20 rental homes. Okay. At 20 years old, I was driving, uh, you know, a broken down 1977 Buick Electra through Queens. I look like, you know, I, I look like a rapper, right? <laughs> it was like, that's kind of what my life was at 20. But for you, it was different. For you, you had 20 rental homes. So how did you get the credit or the money at such a young age to make that kind of investment? Well, I am really gifted at identifying people who are successful and latching onto them as, you know, basically the old saying is ride it till she bucks you. That's, that's what I do. I identify the top people in their fields and I latch my way to them. And basically what I did there was I was, I I got into real estate because I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I dropped out of college. I was a 4.05 GPA, could have had anything handed to me, had had a scholarship, full ride. And I walked away from it all, went into sales, didn't like what I was doing. I, I created a uh, catering business. And uh, you know, my wife and I got married young. And uh, you know, 20 and 19 years old, we had to, you know, we had bills. <laughs> and we both came from poverty. So it uh, it looked like man, I just had something built in me that I had to identify the right person. And I figured out that after buying a house that a real estate agent sold us a home and and I felt like they didn't really do a lot of work and they made like a $4,000 check. And I'm like, my God, if she can do it, I can do it. And I know for a hell of a fact, I can do it a whole lot better because I'm young, I have energy and I could sell, you know, you know, snow or ice to an Eskimo. So that's the uh, that was the goal, and then I uh, I worked for a brokerage uh, as an independent sales agent, and I found another brokerage where they were skilled at flipping homes and rentals, basically doing real estate investing in single family homes. And there again, I latched to two brothers who taught me the uh, you know the world in in two weeks of real estate investing. I asked them for their connections, and the rest is history. I went and sat down with bankers, really, and. You know, sold myself. The you know the broker uh, vouched for me, and then I never had anybody guide me along the way again. After that, I pretty much learned from the school of hard knocks and just went with it and uh, built up twenty homes in the first year uh, of rental houses. And then you know further on, I you know incorporated a lot more to my real estate portfolio. But I'm just one of those guys that I'm just going to get out there and do it. Okay, so a little bit of a technical question. So you've got 20 homes now. Does there come a point where some bank looks down at your credit report or the next person that's going to lend you some money looks down and says, hey, look, I got, I got this 20-year-old kid here and he's got all these houses. Uh, you know, he can go upside down. I'm not going to give him more money to invest in you know, the next home. Is this just sort of like negative thinking on my part or is this really the way, you know, these kind of things could happen? Well, that was the case when the recession hit. So yes, that was the case. 
But to be quite honest with you, from 20 to 22 years old, I had those 20 homes and then I started flipping houses. I sought out after having a track record with the first banker. I sought out to find more community bankers there again, seeking out knowledge and finding the right people and the top people in their niches. I found out who the best lenders were in the community banks in my region here uh, west of Atlanta. And I pretty much went in there and said, hey, I just did this many homes here and there. I need you to give me money based on my track record. And after a period of three or four bankers, they're like, yes. Now, leading up to your question, basically, I sold myself. They loved what I had to sell. And, you know, when the recession was, you know, the, the housing bubble was starting to pop. I had, a, I had amassed a $2 million net worth on paper. And, um, you know, they started getting a little hairy at that point. They're like, well, you know, they're tightening down the reins. You know, the financial world is looking like doom and gloom and obviously had a lot of, you know, to do with housing. But, yeah, I mean, it, they got to the point where they just did not want to lend to somebody at 26, 27 years old at the time, uh, years down the road, uh, further into my business and, and pulled the plug. And that it led to my ultimate demise and uh, leading me into bankruptcy. So, yes and no to answer your All question. All right, let's, let's hold on. <clears throat> so we're going, we're going too quick. All right, so now 20 years old, you've got these houses. Right. Five, six, seven years goes by and bankers start, you know, saying, saying to you, you know, the economy's starting to shift here. Um, we're going to tighten things up a little bit and things start to go south. Where was the first moment that you noticed, oh shit, I'm in trouble here? <laughs> it was my rental houses. I had refinanced homes and or purchased houses created some no money down techniques, um, which is, you know, I can talk about that on a le- later you know date, but um, created some no money down techniques. And I get to the point where I had amassed that portfolio and these guys, these guys, these guys were freaking out. So to be quite honest with you, it, it was, it was a little bit of a shit show. And yeah, I mean, who was freaking out? The bankers, the bankers were freaking out. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they, why were they freaking out? <sighs> I had this, I had this, I had this, well, let me answer your question. I guess I haven't answered your question. I ha- when it, when the, when the shit hit the fan, when I knew it was real, I had these 20 houses, the bankers were freaking out. They were freaking out because my, my renters um, were freaking out. And so let me explain that. I had 20 rental homes. My money was going tight. I saw these properties uh, loan to value 80, 90% housing uh, market crashes. I go to 50% values. Now my tenants are hurting. Um, they can't pay payments. I'm going for from hundreds, uh, I guess you know, hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank down to ten, seven to ten thousand dollars in a matter of a period of few months because I'm still paying my bills. And you mean you raised their rents? No, 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 no. I, I kept their rents where they were, but these people were losing their jobs and they couldn't work with me. Oh. So, so the housing bubble Okay, popped. so they couldn't afford to pay the rent because the economy started to change. The economy started to change. They couldn't afford to pay the rent. I kept paying my bills. And when I started running out of money by working with my tenants, it got a little scary. So I, got to t- I actually sent, sat down with each and every one of them and said, hey, look, I don't want to be the douchebag that keeps taking your money and uh, you know, putting it in my pocket when I'm about to go, you know, lose everything in my checking account, and I'm not going to be able to make those payments. Don't pay me this month. 
let me go back and talk to my bankers. I don't want you guys, if for some reason, if I am forced into foreclosure or bankruptcy, I want you to save your money and you know find yourself a good home because you guys are great tenants for me. And I, I just genuinely love people. I'm not, you know, I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it for the people. So I wanted to give them the most heads up I could have. Well, out of 19, out of 20 people, 19 people were, you know, giving me acclimates. Thank you so much. This is a blessing, et cetera. One gentleman decided to threaten me, decided to threaten me and murder me, cut me up, my kids and all this stuff. He, he was, he, he was, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I've got a tattoo, but he, he was tatted out. He's scary. And I'm in my mid twenties and, you know, I thought he was going to kill me, honestly. So I, I, uh, I go home not thinking anything about it. And, uh, to make the, a long story short, I wake up the next day and realize my money is going out of my checking account. So I'm trying to figure out what is going on. I call, I, uh, call the bank and they said, your money's gone. Um, you need to come in and talk to the bankers. I said, okay. So I'm driving an hour away to this community bank and uh, sit, uh, as soon as I walk in, they say, you need to have a meeting. Uh, okay, that's fine. So I am sitting there for a few minutes thinking, trying to figure out what is going on. My, my money's gone. This is my main operating account. My company accounts are, are, are depleted. I don't know what the heck is going on. So they, they, they bring me to the back room and it's the board of directors, the president, the vice president of this community bank. They're like, Brandon, we know you're going bankrupt. I'm like, uh, excuse me, I haven't made a decision. It's not looking good. I've been trying to reach you guys to talk to you about this. I've already talked to a few of my bankers and we're working some things out. But what do you mean? They're like, well, your renter has come and talked to us, told them you had a meeting and you were going bankrupt. So what we did was we went ahead and called your note due on a couple of projects you have with us, which by all means I had a checking account in that bank. That was my main checking account. So they oh, had a cross collateralization clause to basically empty out my bank accounts. So over, Dude. so overnight, oh. overnight I went penniless by something that was yet to come. And I still probably had at least two more months to figure it out. But this, this tenant got scared. He got so pissed off. He figured out who my lien holder was called the bank, told them what was going on, and out of hearsay, you know, which could have, may have came, but never did at that point, these guys basically legalized mafia. So I guess the wisdom here is to be careful who you borrow from. You know, they're not going to break your legs, but they're going to they're gonna go ahead and do the good fellas things and break your credit. <laughs> you know, they're going to break your yeah. back without breaking your legs. And physically, they're going to break your financial back. Um, they did just that. So... To summarize this, the end of the story, I had to go home and call my wife from an hour drive to our house. Now, granted, we had a 4,000-square-foot home on the golf course, 11 tee box, beautiful home that we designed, nice German cars, $2 million net worth, going to penniless in a matter of 24 hours. And I have to explain this to my wife. So I'm... Well, when you say... Hold on a second. When you, when you say $2 million net worth, you're, you're referring to the properties that you still owns, but you really didn't own them anymore because they, they accelerated the note. Yes. They haven't gone into foreclosure, but on paper, I was worth... I was a paper multimillionaire. I was asset rich and cash poor. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Got it. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. So now you now you walk in and you say to your beautiful wife, who by the way, for for those that are watching at home, um, his wife is Oh, how do we describe his wife? We're good friends if you haven't figured that out. His uh, wife is basically the kindest, sweetest, um, reminds me of Jackie Kennedy. She's got that kind of elegant, you know, just beautiful inside and out kind of girl. Girl, So go ahead. Now, you, now you're home. You talk to your wife and what happens? I walked to the door. I, I told her, I, I called her on the way home. I, I said, hey, it's, got, it's gotten really, really bad. What you knew yesterday, it's gotten three times worse. I'm going to tell you when I get home what's going on. So as soon as I park my car, walk up our walkway and enter the front door, she's looking at me in the kitchen and I just fall down, burst out crying, grown man crying like a baby and I'm crawling to the couch, trying to lift myself up and to the couch. But at that point, trailer park came back and poverty became real. And I, it hit me over, it hit me in that moment and I just couldn't lift myself up to the couch. So I sat there mm. in the fetal position, literally like crawling, you know, crying, snotting tears. And my wife is just sitting there holding me. Now, this is where credit is given, where credit is due through all this financial stress. Most, you know, partners or spouses or whatever, they will leave you over money problems. I got into a big money problem and we lost everything over a period of a couple of months. And that's another story for another day. But it, it got really ugly after that. Um, but she she loved me through the whole process, cried with me, prayed with me. We got through it. And at that point, I ended up having to rent a house from a friend and poverty became real, you know? So I felt like everything was going back. To my All right. Forgiveness. So hang on. Let me just, let me jump in here. So, so now, now you're home, you're looking around your house and you're like, I don't know how long I'm going to be in this place. You don't have access to your accounts. You've worked your ass off for the last seven years. You're not even 30 years old. You've gotten used to a certain, a certain standard of living, a certain way of living. And now the demons of poverty are coming back and the doubt and the, the, uh, you know, the lack of belief and all those things are popping in your head. So you got to rent a place from a friend and rebuild your life. Did you have any kids at that point? I did. I had uh, just had my second kid. She was a newborn. Yeah. This was this was back in 2008, uh, where where it got really really bad. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a rough it was a rough start. All right, before, all over again. Before we go into the upside of this, what lessons did you learn during that period of time that you would not do again? Would it be to keep things a little closer to the vest and not tell tenants? you know, as an example, or is there, or is there something else? You know, I'm a good guy. I mean, I feel that about myself. I'm not out to hurt anybody, but yes, I probably should not have told my business and my life to people that are looking up to me for their security. I should have kept that to myself, but the life lesson was, dude, I was a freaking workaholic in my twenties and I created and amassed a great net worth. And I was making well over six figures as, uh, let's just say, 22 to 27 each year. And I was crushing it. I was doing the Gary Vee thing. Um, I was crushing it. I was hustling. 
And that was my life. And I was barely there for my wife and kids. You know, we loved each other. We're, but it was like, dad's going to work and he's going to freaking bring in the bacon. And I was doing that. I was to do it all over again and give myself, let's just say my 22 year old self advice. I would say, slow down, think through this thing. Now that I know what I know in real estate, I would have gotten better loan to value properties and, uh, you know, make sure there was a lot more equity there. I would have been a little bit more slow and clarify what I wanted, uh, to do in life with this field of expertise that I was really good at. And I would have just took and taken baby steps. I was 20 years old and, you know, within a year I had 20 rental properties and I was flipping 15 homes a year. And I was also the number one sales agent for the brokerage that I worked for um, back in the day, uh, three years consecutively in a row. And then on top of that, I was uh, the number one loan officer for the the brokerage uh, that I worked for in the mortgage industry. So I was the guy, but I was going like crazy. I just would not breathe and I would not put goals in front of me and take baby steps to get there. I was just putting my hands into everything. And then when everything crashed, my whole financial life crashed because I wasn't intentional on what I wanted to do. I was just putting my hands in too many pots and not being focused. Okay. All right. So now here we are. So now you're in your friend's place. The money's gone. You got two babies. You got a wife that loves you and supports you. Did you, I mean, I feel like, you know, I would be sitting there going, you know, what the hell? I had the world by the balls here. I had everything I wanted. I had millions of dollars in the bank. Buy whatever I wanted to buy. I was on top of the world. Now I got to start this all over again. How long did you have a pity party for yourself or did you not? No, dude, I had a pity party. I was a people guy. I was out there serving the public. And the public burnt me. So I had to get by myself for several, several months. And I said, look, you know, I just don't want to be around people anymore, but I don't know anything else. So instead of being a sales agent, selling homes for the people, I decided I'm just going to slow down. I'm going to think things through. I'm going to go get a broker's license. I'm going to work for myself, not for other people. And I'm going to go rent out houses for investors because I created an investor database I was going to serve investors, people that gave me respect for my knowledge. And uh, I was not going to get my own. I was not going to gain my own rental homes. I was not going to go serve the public anymore outside of that. And I was going to take it slow. And I was going to learn and create some systems that got me to the next level. So you start renting and you're making a commission for each person that you put into a home, right? Yes. All right. So now at this point, credit is slowly starting to get repaired. You're starting to come back. Did you say bankruptcy? You claim bankruptcy, yeah? I did. I was forced into chapter seven. All right. Bankruptcy. All right. So now you have chapter seven, which I'm assuming takes at least a few years to, uh, you know, be able to start borrowing again. What did that trajectory look like from moving into your friend's place and renting from him, helping people to move into houses and making commissions on that? to the point where you bought your own first home again. And what did that feel like? Well, this is an interesting story here. So I'm working for myself. I'm a broker. I'm a qualifying broker. I own my own company. Don't have to answer to anybody. I can take things slow. I started uh, advertising myself as a foreclosure real estate agent, basically an REO type of agent. I put my resume out there. What's, sorry, what's REO stand for? 
real estate owned. Um, that's basically what they call foreclosures in the banking industry. Oh, meaning that somebody doesn't own it anymore. The real estate owns it. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Got it. So I put myself out there. I had the seven years of experience. I created this awesome resume, applied it to these banks, and I started getting these foreclosure listings. So now we were representing banks. We were, we were, we were just getting a bunch of inventory. My wife and I were, you know, starting to build up a listing business under my brokerage. And I became a, I, I created a really well-known brokerage over here at the, uh, in West Georgia at the time. And, uh, we were just, we were killing it. So we had a lot of inventory over there. At one point I had received a series of townhomes, um, 25 townhomes. So I called, who later became my business partner. Uh, he, he was one of my investors that I was working with, uh, as well as went to the church that I went to, um, prior to the recession he and I always clicked really well together. His name is Will, and he and he did an awesome thing. Um, uh, you know, as far as when we worked together um, before we split up recently, which was being the best salesman he can be. So I called him up, said, "Hey, I've got these twenty-five townhomes. You know me. I know how to in you know go into a property and exit out of a property." I said, "I know you have a large network. Is there any way you and I can put our heads together? We got twenty-five townhomes." bank has me listing these at $18,000 a piece. You got to think these are $100,000 townhomes, but this is when the market crashed. We got these, um, you know, listing fairly, fairly cheap, 20 cents on a dollar. These banks were just unloading them. They were using me as the foreclosure agent. I said, Hey, would you be willing to put your name on paper? You be the buyer on paper, or we do it as a, uh, with an LLC that we can put together and just disclose it, the bank, but you and I put our heads together Let's contract these. I think I can get these for fifteen thousand. So we put a lowball offer of thirteen thousand, and the bank took it. Um, and you know, Will and I were looking at each other. I said, "You think you can help me push these properties?" He said, "Yes, let's do it." It was the birth of a new business, man. We had created a company called Investor Network out of this one move, which put us on uh, the cover of trade magazines, sitting in Barnes and Nobles, um, all these different bookstores, making grown men cry because they were loving the. American dream, you know, the rebuilt, you know, rising above the ashes kind of story here. Um, so we take these properties, we get them under contract, we do an open house. Now here's the story. We don't have the earnest money to put down, which was $5,000 in non-refundable earnest money. Earnest money basically meaning you got to put a deposit, um, you know, some sort of consideration of some kind of money to consider on the table so that the bank is willing to contract with you and take it off the market. We didn't have that. He almost lost everything through the recession. I did lose everything. We were barely cranking out any income. How do we come up with $5,000 between us? Neither one of us had it. So we decided now that we have the contract on this set of 25 townhomes for 13 grand a piece, we are going to do this massive, massive open house we are going to call any investor I've ever worked with and any investor he's ever worked with. And we're going to tell them we have the cheapest real estate here just outside of Atlanta. And we are advertising these properties for $25,000. Now, he and I were thinking if we can at least get to 18, we, you know, over 25 homes, we can make a six-figure payday. So we call these guys up, say, look, if you're interested, come out here to the open house. Let's do it. Uh, let's see what we can put together for us. These guys come out there, they're like, yes, we're contracting these properties left and right on paper. 
Um, they're giving us a thousand dollars non-refundable um, each property. Now we have twenty five thousand dollars in our hand off of twenty five townhomes. We take this money, and worst case scenario, if these guys back out on us, we pay five grand out of it to the bank. Now we've just netted twenty. He takes ten thousand. I take ten thousand. Okay, so this is what happened. Beat by beat, we contract these things. We don't have the money to purchase them. How the hell do we purchase these properties? We called up an attorney, said, hey, look, can you take this, which is completely legal, um, can you take this and these contracts that we have, do a double back-to-back closing, use the investor's money to fund our purchase, cut us back the difference, and give them the keys. He's like, absolutely. As long as the money comes in and out on the same day, nobody's going to hurt yourself. You know, nobody's in trouble. Everybody's doing everything on the up and up and everything's fine. Dude, I'm telling you within seven days, one year out of bankruptcy, within seven days of getting those listings under contract, I made a hundred thousand dollars. All right. So let's, let's talk about somebody who's in your shoes and they're like, dude, I got a bankruptcy on my, uh, on my credit report. Um, I, I got a divorce. I, um, I got, I got, you know, 20 bucks to my name. I have fallen on hard times. I'm an ex-alcoholic, whatever the story is, whatever the belief is, there was a moment in time for you when you said, I am going to rise above where I am and I'm going to step into my greatness and I'm going to step into something bigger. What advice would you have wanted to hear back then? Well, <laughs> there's always tomorrow, but that tomorrow can be today if you put your mind to use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something I think I would like to have heard. It took me a year to get, well, it took me six months to get out of my pity party, like I said earlier. And then I decided to rebrand and rebuild. And then after a, a process, something came out of it. So something else, actually, I told one of my coaching clients today, a lady that's you know, a nurse by day and you know, trying to achieve something great with uh, real estate being a realtor by night. Essentially, she wants to be doing this full time. I told her to enjoy the process. You know, She's not making a lot of money, but she's picking my brain on how to make a lot of money in this industry. And I'm telling her everything that I've learned in a period of 16 years defined into 12 hours, essentially, over you know several weeks. I told her, you can't do this overnight. I said, it took me to the point that I made $100,000. It took me seven years of failures. And then I had the ultimate big failure, but then I had the ultimate you know, whatever, you know, this, the heavens opened up for me, but it was cause I had to learn. I had to, I had to have that fast foundation. Um, you know, I, I mean, I had a slow foundation built, um, now through you working with me, I can give you everything that I've learned. I can give you the best of me out of 16 years in 12 hours and give you the knowledge, but you got to enjoy the process. You got to get out there and, and just love what you do and make sure you're having fun. And then know that as long as you're helping people, like these investors, these investors wanted a strong ROI and you can bring value to them. As long as you're helping people, the money will follow. So that's something I told her. And that's something I would have loved to have known in that first six months after bankruptcy. Stop having a pity party, figure out how to help people. That's what's going to help you make more money. I love that. It's a great refocus. It's a great shift on looking at other things. You know, so 
now you're off and you're buying properties and you know you hit your first million at 30 you hit your second million at 33 you flipped 1500 homes you know and now you're moving into another area which is you're sort of leveraging technology using everything that you've learned and moving it into the Airbnb world why are you leaning more towards Airbnbs than traditional rentals? Well, so since the recession, my business partner and I, after creating that $100,000 profit, we created a private capital business that was, you know, essentially created those millions that you just said. But we also created, you know, uh, 60 to 100, um, 60 rental homes, and then about 40 short-term things. We, we decided to, we created basically 100 rental homes and realized that these single family homes were just killing us. They weren't fun. They were starter homes. You deal with a lot of, I hate to be like this, but low grade tenants. And it wasn't fun. It was, it was a lot of work. So over the last couple of years, as you know, the money has been compounding, I decided um, to, to, to go in and purchase like a little vacation spot for my wife and I, the kind of like your you know, name of your podcast here, work hard. You need somewhere to go play hard. So we loved Savannah. We built a, we, we remodeled an 1890 Victorian over there. And, you know, we just, we just love it as a, as a second home. So we decided to open it up to the public. Now that house alone, the reason why, to answer your question, the reason why I like Airbnb versus regular rentals is that house alone, if I rented it out to a regular tenant on a longer term lease, year or two year lease, I would only get $1,500 a month. Now, because I've made it super duper nice, I'm giving them the best hotel experience in this house in a private sitting without having to deal with a hotel. And man, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm just on one property. I'm making $6,000 a month, netting probably five grand a month. How do you know whether or not an Airbnb is going to be successful? Is it what, like, what, what's your, what's your criteria? Is it, is it that there are other Airbnbs nearby or is it a gut feeling or how do you know? Well, there are Airbnbs anywhere and everywhere, even in some small Midwestern town that nobody has ever heard of. I don't necessarily advise doing that unless you just own a piece of property out there and you just want to experiment. I wouldn't go out and just buy something in some no-name town. What I like to do is find a city that I would enjoy for me and my family to go vacation in or, or have a weekend trip or a few days to get away to breathe, but to also make sure that other people would like it too. So my first was in Savannah. Uh, my second was in Hilton Head. My third was in North Georgia uh, around the Blue Ridge area. These are all destination areas for people you know, that want to get away. So I make sure that I am in some kind of on-demand area that uh, has a lot to offer. What issues have you had? <laughs> Oh, I think you might have seen a post from me. I think that's why you're asking that. Yeah. <laughs> Recently, because Savannah is a drinking town, I had a lady get drunk and pass out in a shower. Now, granted, I have a really nice tiled shower with tempered glass doors, super high-end look. She passes out in the shower, wakes up the next morning, has and, and calls us and tells us we have a plumbing leak. So we have a contractor go out there, check on it. He's like, Brandon, this is more than a plumbing leak. Your whole house is flooded on the bottom level. Granted, an 1890 fully restored home from three years ago when I purchased it. And this lady lies to me. 
basically. So we, uh, we <laughs> the reason why we know she lied, um, it comes in a second, but she, she had gone in and called us up, said there was this leak. We start getting out the property uh, and the sheetrock and the, and the uh, walls and realize that there's no plumbing leaks. So we do an air pressure test. There's no holes. There's no leaks. And then the contractor just happens to decide to open the washer and there's like 15 soaking wet towels. So they knew what they did. They blamed it on a leak. We had already tear, uh, torn the shower house, ripped out all the walls, moved all the furniture, and then we had to rebuild it back. I called the lady, actually my wife did, God bless her, called the lady up and told her to get out of the house. Now you got to leave. We're going to deal with this later. Um, but she flooded my house. It was a $15,000 insurance claim. And I'm still waiting to get paid. This was two months ago. Did she get a bad review? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> because you can do yeah. that, right? You, you can give them a bad review. You can, you can. Yeah, yeah. That's that's something still to come. Still, <laughs> still to come. Well, yep. you know what, man? I, I know that you had an opportunity to do a real estate television show, um, but you passed on it. Why? That's a that's a that's another interesting story. We actually wanted the television show, so my business partner and I were the you know well known. Flipper, flippers of, of Atlanta and West Georgia were pretty big, especially like between 2012 to let's just say 2017. And we were on the cover of magazines and we had a great story there with, with our backgrounds and how we you know, did business. And we also had a friend that had a uh, furniture business and he was employing homeless men. He was taking homeless men out of homeless camps and putting these guys back to work and creating value for them, which also had a great story to you know, to the public. So we put our heads together. Uh, we had some film filmmaking ties uh, w- with uh, the television industry through our networks. And um, Tom Foreman of Relativity Media flew down with us or had his people fly down, interview us. They loved what they had to say. They took some shots of the, I guess, the offices and things like that and the, the furniture company's warehouse. And basically the whole premise was we were going to take this gentleman's um, story taking homeless men, but instead of building furniture in, in a warehouse, they we were going to use our systems and put them in to the housing business and have them flipping houses. And of course, you know maybe you have the Duck Dynasty thing or or something like that, some kind of comic relief or whatever, um, you know whatnot. But anyways, everybody was happy. It was all green lit verbally. We were waiting on contractors. Uh, we actually got to get on set and up in Kennesaw, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. On a, on a show with Holmes from HDTV, met Tom Foreman in person. It was, it was incredible. Uh, we, we flew in and out of California. Everything was verbally. We were waiting three months later, still no contract. We're like, what's going on? And then it hit us. Relativity Media was going bankrupt, Chapter 11, reorganizing, and the rest was history. We never heard from ever again. And you probably could care less about it, right? You know what? I'm glad it did not happen. <laughs> I don't care. I don't want, I mean, I want to bring value. I think it would have corrupted me, honestly. I was still, pre- I was still pretty young at the time. And, uh, you know, I don't know if my values were 100% what they were now. I mean, I'm not saying I was a bad guy by any means, but, you know, things happen for a reason. And I'm glad it did not happen at that time. I love it. Let's move on to the fulfillment portion of the show and talk about some of the things that you do to improve areas that are outside of real estate. So what I want to first start 
by asking is what's one goal that you thought when you achieved it, you know, everything's going to be great. If I have this goal, everything is going to be great. And then you got it and you were like, hmm, that really was not what I wanted it to be. I wanted to be a multimillionaire. I wanted to create something. And then I created this business that was consuming my time. And, you know, we had an incredible business. I have an incredible business partner. He's very gifted at what he does. I feel, I feel blessed to know him. But we created this thing and it became an animal. It was a vehicle. I mean, our private capital investors were, were going and attacking us. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad I had the experience, but it's like, man, I kind of, I kind of wish I quit it sooner. I wish I quit two years ago because we were, we were really killing ourselves. I mean, we were killing ourselves to make our investors happy. We were kind of slightly miserable. We we're working extra long hours, and it was it was pretty it was pretty exhausting of a business, to be quite frank. But yeah, I mean, I wish I had I wish I had strategized a little bit better and put more uh, people in place versus taking back a lot of the, the net profits. We were really like banking up the cash. If I had put more people in place and was diligent about um, delegation more. I would have probably had a more systemized business and it might have still been here today and everything would have flown through smooth sailing. So, Yep, yep. Makes sense to me. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Dude, I, I love Spanish culture. I have never been to Spain. And something about that, that terrain and what I see in pictures and seen in movies, it just, it calls me. Like, my wife and I never traveled growing up. We've been traveling as adults as we've been making money and we love travel. And Spain is somewhere I really desire to go. You know, I want to go and hang out for a month. Awesome. I can help you with that. Been there a bunch of times. Um, we may even be going there together. Wink, wink. What is one thing that your soul has been really calling you to do, but for whatever reason, you just haven't been able to pull the trigger on it? Up until recently, I've been forced to work, work, work. Now I am at a place where my life, I'm pushing away the old business and going into a new business. And people have always come to me for help. And I will give them that advice. And some people have actually created six-figure incomes out of that advice that I've given them. So I want to take that skill set, that knowledge of helping people and do more coaching and bringing value to the people and then somehow get compensated for that. That's not the end goal. I want to help people specifically in my West Georgia area so that I can create this battle on the battleground to attack that poverty spirit from the area that I came from. Cause I got a lot of people on the side of town where I come from that has seen my life and they, they see my glory, but they don't know my story. So now I want to take ordinary people and help them become extraordinary. I love that. I love that because what you're doing is you're effectively giving back to the community in a more meaningful way. So that's awesome. Okay, let's, uh, let's wrap up with our rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? <laughs> I actually, well, I read and absorb a lot of material and they will ask me for book recommendations as well as uh, film recommendations. And I'm the go-to guy for 
good flicks and good books. Go-to guy for good flicks and good books. I love that. What is your favorite flick of all time? I know that's a tough question to to ask, but what would you say? Man, I'm a Daniel Day-Lewis sucker. I love anything he's ever done. But to be quite frank, um, and this is a guy's guy movie. I guess I'm that typical guy's guy, but I love Last of the Mohicans. What is it about uh, that movie that you love? You've got the love story. You've got the guy going to defend his honor with his friends. You got you got the, uh, the passion. You got the yeah him on the battleground defending. I mean, it feels like the story of my life in a in another sense. What one book have you reread the most? Well, the easy answer is the Four Hour Work Week, mm-hmm. but in recent times, is the is two books in the last few years. I've read it two or three times each. Uh, Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. <laughs> mm, and, really? Is uh, that a good book? I haven't read it. Dude, read that. Get that on Amazon immediately. Really? I'll do it right now. Yeah, and then Essentialism. Essentialism. So basically, I, actually, I'll let you guys look it up. Look it up and determine if it's for you, but I think you guys will love it. Okay, I'm going to check that out. What is your guilty pleasure? Drinking a fine red Italian wine, listening to jazz music while cooking. Mm, how do you listen to your jazz music? What do you uh, What do you use, Pandora? I use Pandora or Amazon Music. And what playlist. station do you use on Pandora? I'll do it tonight. I listen to a lot of the uh, 1920s Django Reinhardt. So if you've never listened to Django Reinhardt, pop open a nice Italian red wine and... Uh, if you like to cook or not cook, it doesn't matter. But just listen to Django Reinhardt. It will take you to a place. Uh, it'll take you to another world. Django yeah. Reinhardt. Okay, I'm going to do that tonight. So Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck is going to be tomorrow. And uh, Django Reinhardt will be tonight. Absolutely love it. All right, last question. What one question do you want to ask me? I want to learn podcasting for my new podcast, but I think that's why we're doing your coaching. Yep, you got <laughs> it. I think that's uh, that we are gonna we're gonna handle. But outside of uh, you know, like a coaching question, what's one question you want to ask? Are you as positive as you are in front of the scenes, behind the scenes when the cameras aren't reeling? Mm, that's such an honest question. Um, I want to give you a bullshit answer. I really do. I want to tell you <laughs> that I am so fucking positive. And if my wife were here, she'd kick me right in the balls. Um, No, I battle. I battle positivity. It is not easy for me. I wake up in the morning and think the world is coming to an end. My life is over. I'm a fraud. And I've got to journal. And I've got to meditate. And I've got to surround myself with the right people. Like It is work for me. I am not one of these guys where it comes naturally to me. But all of that said, I am committed to making sure that I do the work because I know that this is a blind spot that I have. It does not come easy for me. So the answer to your question is no, I have to work on it. Well, I think there's some valuable content there. I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to teach people as well. What you see, you know, from influencers and things like that. You know, we all have the battlefield of the mind. It doesn't matter your income level, your class level, or anything. We all struggle with reality. 
And there's a summit to greatness. I mean, there's, you know, it's just dedicated work going back and forth. And, you know, the struggle is real, but one foot at a time, right? That is a perfect place to end this podcast. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Please follow me on Instagram. I am learning Instagram for the first time. I think it's Brandon G. Thompson. I try to give good, valuable content. And uh, just please follow me because I got a lot of good stuff coming up here in the near future. Awesome. I am so grateful that you took the time to do this. And I cannot thank you enough. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 